welcome to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, and we have another kind of experimental episode today. I thought I'd bring on our old friend, the Reverend Dr. Jamie Franklin, and just have a, a looser chat about the new year and maybe mental health and Christianity, because it's a topic that's been coming up a lot lately. Jamie, how are you doing? Yeah, really well, thanks, Nick. Doing really well. Thank you. How are you? I am, well, let's find out over the course of the, of the hour. But... Um, <laughs> I mean, we've already had loads of tech problems, which we always seem to have every time we record. That's yeah, we're saying that's the enemy. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Yes, that is the enemy. I mean, it's because they they don't want us talking about Christianity. They don't want us bringing the light. So the devil tries to sabotage tech. Yeah, exactly. And and some people might think that's far fetched, but actually, we were saying, weren't we, that there's actually we in modernity we have this kind of binary between material and non-material, and we think, well, the, you know, the material world that's our bodies and so on, and then the spiritual world is the non-material world, and so how do they interact? Uh, but this is the wrong way of thinking about it. There's a there's a there's a way. There's clearly a way that the, the material world, or at least the spiritual world, interacts with the material world, and you can see this, for example, in the phenomenon of uh, demonic possession. And uh, also, I was saying to you, I've been reading this book. Um, by an academic, I think her name is Pasolka, about UFOs. Um, now, I, I'm not. I'm kind of agnostic about what I think is actually going on here, but um, she she seems to suggest that this this uh, binary between the physical and the sort of spiritual can be um, well. You can sort of deconstruct this because uh, she's seen evidence of these, you know, supposedly Ameri- um sorry, alien. Um, technologies like physical technologies that people have discovered in the desert and then they've then scientists have discovered them in the desert and then done experiments on them and developed biotechnologies from them so anyway so it's just another example of the way that that that, that binary between material and, and non-material can be challenged um, and it's 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 just it's just a kind of um, a habit of a habit of thought as it were that we have in modernity so I, I actually believe this I know we're kind of joking about it but I actually think that the devil does mess around with technology in order to to stop things like this happening for sure I was joking you were serious but that's, that's <laughs> a kind of a theme probably throughout our conversations but um yeah, yeah not many vicars probably read demonic possession books and UFO books they might well read- they should they should, they should yeah I mean, they certainly should read books about demonic possession because it's absolutely real. I mean, there's no, there's no question about it. Anyone, anyone who's ever met anyone who's actually demonically possessed knows this. I mean, not that I have, but I've read about it. Probably a lot of woke people are demonically possessed. Well, maybe I don't know. I'd, I'd say they might, they might, they're probably more likely to be ideologically possessed. But demonic possession is like a real thing. Like if you read, um, so the way I got into it is because I read, I heard the guy on the the Delling Pod uh, podcast. Just trying to remember his name. He wrote a book called Demonic Foes, but he's he was a, a psychiatrist, and he he actually was used by or he he is used by Catholic priests, Roman Catholic priests, to help them to determine whether somebody is genuinely demonic possessed or whether they just have a mental health problem. Richard Gallagher. And Richard Gallagher. That's it. It just yeah, came yeah. to me. Yeah, did it via Google. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a Rogan style podcast where I'm going to Google stuff in the middle of it. I'm going to say, Jamie, pull that up, but just to myself. In my yeah. head, and then I'll pull okay. it up. Oh yeah, but his. Hang on a second. But his assistant's called Jamie, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that, just to clarify, yeah, that might be, be weird if I just confusing said it to myself. Jamie. Yeah, or to me. If I had a person in my head called Jamie, who was always like, <laughs> and that was my name as well. Very, <laughs> oh very, yeah, your very name's good. also Jamie. I yeah, only yeah, just realised that. I'm a bit tired. Yeah. Sorry, I've only just That's pulled okay. that together. That's yeah, fine. You're called Jamie, but I'm also referring to an imaginary producer called Jamie. Yeah. Well, this has started strong. This is going to be. I think it started really strong. It's a loose format I'm doing because. Well, it's the new year, so I thought I'd catch up with you and see how you're, if you had any thoughts about the new year. 
And then I thought we'd get into this mental health and Christianity topic. And sorry to people who are expecting another Bible study. We will do one, but they take yeah. a lot of preparation, which we haven't done. So we're doing Tower of Babel next, which is going to be a lot of preparation. I'll have to read oh, yeah. hundreds Fantastic. of books. But yeah. um, so do you see yourself doing exorcisms at some point, by the way? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. Um, I'd definitely be up for it. Um, there are, so believe it or not, the Church of England does actually have protocols around exorcism, um, but they tend to be, as far as I know, I don't know what it's like here, the place where I'm currently, but in a general sense, I think they tend to be quite bureaucratic and tied up in the kind of secular bureaucracy of the Church of England, and there would be all sorts of safeguarding concerns and, and, and that sort of stuff. I'm not saying there isn't the same sort of thing in the Roman Catholic Church, but I think in the Roman Catholic Church, there's more of a kind of... Um, how would you say, a sort of inclination to believe in the reality of the supernatural, whereas the Church of England, I mean, you could say that the biggest problem that Church of England has from a spiritual perspective is just this kind of pervasive secularism, which affects absolutely everything, where basically the kind of assumption is that there's no spiritual world and that, you know, the material reality is all that exists. The closest thing I've done is, is um, you know, I've been to houses where people say that there are um, hauntings and poltergeists and things like that and done house blessings I mean I've never actually seen anything in those settings that is particularly sort of sensational but that's that's the kind of stuff that I've I've seen yeah there was a priest recently saying don't read the bible wasn't there uh, yeah. on x which I thought was fascinating for a, a priest to be saying that it was some sort of uh, lgbt priest uh, and he, he was he a bishop said, yeah he was a bishop well, yeah, I mean, uh, of, of sorts. I mean, so far as he was wearing a purple shirt, um, he's he, apparently, I, don't, I haven't actually done any research at him. Yeah, <laughs> apparently uh, he left the Church of England, started his own denomination and appointed himself archbishop. So it's not necessarily the most legitimate thing in the world. But yeah, essentially he was saying, he was making some kind of spurious point about how Christ said that the Bible is can be misleading and he's actually telling us not to read the Bible and that the Bible makes you dogmatic and unloving and what you need to do. He actually used this phrase, which is yeah, it's pure, pure Satanism, really, when he said, um, listen to those who are brimming with light. Uh, yeah, stop reading the Bible and listen to those who are bring, brimming with light, which is the reason I say it's satanic is because um, it's just Luciferian imagery. You know, Lucifer is the light bearer. You the know, Lord so. of Light from Game of Thrones. Exactly, yeah. So, but it's a it's a false light, you know. It's like the apostle Paul says that that the uh, the devil himself masquerades as an angel of light. And it's the devil's trick, you know. It's it's one of the devil's main tricks is that he pretends to be good when in fact he's evil. And that's yeah, we talked about that, haven't we? In the Genesis, um, you know, first Genesis episodes, you know, in the in the Garden of Eden, you know, did God actually say that? You know, I think God might have said something different, or I think God might not have your best interests at heart, and I really do, and all this kind of stuff. So, it's just Satanism, basically. It's not even subtle. And when you talk about the safeguarding concerns of the uh, of um, exorcisms, that's quite interesting because I can imagine you see you're not allowed to just rock up in the church field and say, "I'll give it a crack." Where is she? <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. much more like there's yeah. there's procedures. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And do you have um, your exorcism certificate? How many have you done? Where did you yeah. study? Which exorcism school did you go to? Yeah, uh, uh, and yeah, there'll be yeah. I mean, forms you'd have to fill in. Yeah, diocesan functionaries you'd have to speak to. That kind of stuff. I mean, to be fair, you know, when you read about exorcisms, they do sound like they can be quite dangerous because uh, a lot of the time people who are genuinely demonic, demonically possessed are, they have supernatural strength, you know, superhuman strength, and they can throw off, you know, full, full grown men who are trying to like wrestle them to the ground and things like that. So, you know, you do, I think you do have to do it properly. Um, but I, to be honest with you, I don't know enough about the Church of England paradigm to 
say very much about it because I just I just genuinely don't know. But I imagine it's it's highly secularized and, and bureaucratized. Oh yeah, it's the uh, exorcism blob that's killing this country. That's what <laughs> yeah. I've always said. It's the exorcism yeah. deep state. Yeah, you just can't get any exorcisms done anymore. You know, if you're a startup exorcism company. Yeah. There's all sorts of regulations now. Yeah, there's too much red tape for sure. Yeah, you should. There should be a lot more freedom. And um, let the market decide. Yeah, get rid of these demons. Uh, you know, <laughs> we don't have time for your forms. Yeah. And um, yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's serious point. Okay, yeah. another book. Since we're just talking free form, I hope you don't mind me just hijacking things. Uh, last year, I wrote read a book called Return of the jo- Gods. <laughs> Return of the Jobs. Uh, Return of the Steve Jobs. Return of the the Gods by an American charismatic pastor who's actually a Messianic Jew, um, I understand. And his name is Khan. Um, I can't remember, Jonathan Khan, I think his first, his, his first name is. It's, it's, it's far from a great work of literature. But his, um, his thesis, and I find this really quite insightful, is that you know in, in the first centuries of Christianity, basically what happened was a kind of ma- mass exorcism of civilization, of Western civilization, and, and the civilizations that were affected by Christianity. So you've got kind of mass, mass exorcism. The, the gods were banished, largely speaking, from those nations as the practices of idolatry diminished because of the coming of Christianity. And of course, you see this in the Gospels and in the Book of Acts, because there's so much exorcism going on there. I mean, Christ is an exorcist. The early apostles are exorcists, you know, they're casting demons out of people left, right and centre. So that's basically the expulsion of the gods. Now, fast forward to where we are today, we've got the decline of Christianity and the rise of various types of type of occult practices. And Khan is essentially saying that this is a kind of reinvitation or sorry, invitation and reintroduction of the gods into society. And we're seeing the, the old gods manifest themselves in the present world in new ways. And he he links various um, commonly seen symbols in our society with the old gods, and particularly uh, things like the LGBT flag, for example, which apparently, I, I, and uh, to be honest with you, I haven't done loads of um, research into this, but apparently the colours on that flag actually um, were designed to correspond to features associated with the god Asherah, who was like the god of sexuality and the god of um, I, I, this isn't the right word. This is an anachronistic word, but, but sort of the god of transgenderism, essentially. It was a kind of non-binary god that switched between um, male and female. And, and Khan actually brings to bear quite a lot of historical evidence for this. So we sort of think of transgenderism as a sort of modern phenomenon, but it was actually something that was associated with various uh, occult and idol, um, idolatrous practices in the in the world of the ancient Near East and the Greco-Roman times as well. So... Uh, it's a, a very, I think, a very, very insightful book. And also, one of the things it does is it sort of makes the point that what we're seeing today with the sort of progressive, you know, the progressive woke or whatever you want to call it, this is not just some kind of, you know, secular political phenomenon. This is actually a kind of new religion. It's a, it's a, it's an, it's, it's a, it's a reemergence of a sort of pagan idolatry, but sort of updated for the 21st century, as it were. That's interesting. Yeah, it's Jonathan Kahn, as you said, C A H N, and um, yeah, that is interesting. And and I was going to interview a woman who called Rachel Wilson, who tried to cancel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She did this book, Occult Feminism. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. And yeah, so yeah. I, I listened to that audio in preparation for that podcast. That never happened, but it was that was about the satanic occult roots of feminism. Obviously, it's the kind of thing I'd like. So I was like, oh yeah, this just seems fair enough. And it was all, you know, it was started. It is fascinating, you know, this idea. We've got this weird idea that now that feminism is sort of anti-Christian, but or sorry that it's 
No, we, we got the that, that, that you couldn't be a. What was I going to say? That basically, feminists in the past were sort of. They were pro. Louise um, Perry's always talking about. It. They were sort of. They were pro. They were like pro life. They were pro marriage. Somehow, it's all got. But apparently, but anyway, yeah. if you listen to Rachel Wilson, it does go back to uh, to the occult. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, to be honest, I've not read the book. I heard her but interviewed But there's two different um, arguments. Sorry, the Louise Perry one is like, yeah. oh, it was actually more Christian when it started, and it's only become sort of subverted. But the Rachel Wilson argument is more like, no, it was always satanic. Yeah, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. Um, I'd, I'd have to know more about how to pick apart the two there. But I certainly think at some point the... So, I mean, I put it in this way. Christianity was a genuinely egalitarian phenomenon in a sense, not in the sense that it it, um, destroyed all sort of um, hierarchies and differences between men and women or anything like that, but in the sense that it introduced the notion of the the sacredness of humanity, you know, applied to everyone, which which just just didn't exist in the Greco-Roman Empire. You know, if you see the way that, um, you know, uh, non-noble women were treated, for example, or, you know, people who weren't citizens. I mean, it's just... this is quite well known to anyone who's who sort of heard anything yeah. um, you know, around this, you know, with Tom Holland, Dominion, all this kind of stuff. He makes this point extensively. But anyway, so with the Christianity... Well, that's where get, Christianity is a bit lefty, isn't it? And that's where I sometimes think I should go back to my Viking roots. I've got Viking no, no, no. and just worship Odin or something. <laughs> just kidding, guys. But No, 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 no I, don't, I don't really think it's lefty at all. I think, I think leftism is a distortion of Christianity because you still have the hierarchies within within Christianity, but you have... You have um, you have dignity for each person within those hierarchies. So, you know, the Apostle Paul, on the one hand, he says, you know, uh, the husband is the head of the wife as as uh, um, as um, as God is the head of Christ. I've, I've got that the wrong way around. But essentially, he there is a very clear hierarchy in the, in the mind of, of the Apostle Paul. But then on the other hand, in the book of, of, of Ephesians, he says, husbands, love your wives and give yourselves up for them as Christ gave himself up for the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in the same passage in which he says wives submit to your husbands so on the one hand he he preserves the hierarchy the husband is the head of the wife but the husband is to to give himself up in love for the wife in the same way that Christ gave himself up you know on the cross for the church so there is a hierarchy but there's also a sort of um uh, you know a mutual act of of love and service that takes place within the hierarchy as well and um what the sort of modern and so you could say, well, in a sense, that's sort of feminist because it puts women in a in a hell of a lot of a better position than they were in the Greco-Roman Empire when they could just be used like, you know, just raped by, you know, your your, your average um, male freeborn citizen. So they're in a much better position in the Christian church, obviously. And, and, and non-married women are spoken about as, as sisters, you know, elderly women are spoken about as mothers and so on and so forth. So there's so you're sort of brought into this family where you're protected and dignified and everything like that and where you've got a role. What modern feminism does is it goes further than that. I mean, it, obviously, there are sort of various waves, aren't there, and everything like that. But what it, what it essentially is trying to do is it's trying to sort of critique the notion that there should be any kind of differentiation between men and women in marriage or in society or anything like that. And deconstruct that hierarchy and say that that hierarchy is essentially a kind of product of, um, you know, male patriarchal chauvinistic oppression, and that, and that the, and men have been oppressing women for thousands and thousands of years, and now it's time for women to sort of take the power back and be in control and blah 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 and all that kind of stuff, and that that kind of thing is is deeply wrong, and I think one of the things that Rachel Wilson said in the interview that I heard, which was on germ warfare, was that the one you heard on germ warfare? Um, no. 
Okay. Well, she was on Germ Warfare, which is a great podcast, by the way. I don't know if you've heard of it. So um, South, South African guy um, called Germ. But anyway, one thing she was saying is um, that these early uh, feminists, yeah, they were, all, they were all into the occult in some way, as lots of people at the beginning of the 20th century were. It was very, you know, it was a time when the occult was in vogue. Um, but lots of, you know, the time of suffrage and everything like that, it was a genuinely like open question amongst women whether or not they wanted the vote. You know, not lots and lots of women didn't want the vote. And I think Rachel women actually, Rachel Wilson actually says that, um, that a majority of women at the time didn't want the vote. And that was, the, that was genuinely what they thought. They wanted to be in a situation where the husband, as the head of the household, had the vote and was the representative, was the, the if you like, political representative of the household. They didn't want to be involved in the kind of public political discussion because they didn't see that as their, their role or their place. And they actually sort of it as a kind of unfeminine, unbecoming thing to do to get involved in politics. So well, it's not, you know, nowadays we're so brainwashed, we can't even imagine that that could be a, a sort of legitimate dialogue, but it most certainly was. Yeah, and Rachel's one of the people saying women should uh, give up the vote. I'm not saying that, guys, but Rachel is, and she's a woman, and she's researched <laughs> it a lot. So I defer to her. As a feminist, yeah. I defer to Rachel Wilson saying that women should give up the vote. Yeah, and obviously, me agree, too. Obviously me too. agree with it as a feminist. Um, yeah. But um, a Christian feminist, exactly. Speaking of that, <laughs> actually, while we're on that, did you did you happen to see that? Because she was involved with this dispute on Twitter, on X, formerly known as Twitter about yeah. calendar gate and then kate gate did you follow all that no, so for, i mean i've heard you talking about it oh, i haven't followed it personally i just wanted to had any, any take because all the christian uh, uh, all the conservatives in the u.s freaked out because there was this calendar of um, conservative women dressed you wouldn't exactly say provocatively but very mildly provocatively one of them did have a cross in the background which was sort of controversial and then there was this follow-up which was this kate gate where this woman isabella was uh, deluca was making a cake and the question was, was she doing it with a sort of tight T-shirt in a provocative way? And, it, and this just like led to like meltdowns on the, and it's sort of so silly and, and, and sort of why we're losing the culture war, you could argue. But then the, the counter argument is like, well, no, well, what are our principles? Because we've just been playing catch. We've just been sort of playing on the defensive against the left. And what are we actually preserving and so on? So the, the argument is, so should we be freaking out about a calendar? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know because I haven't really followed it Um too closely but yeah i mean if, if rachel wilson is criticizing it i'd probably think that she's she's probably got she's probably got a point because she seems pretty based to me so i i don't know i'd 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 defer to her not knowing too much about it but yeah certainly certainly um it's got to be it's got to be in keeping with with what i've just said that modesty in public for women is is a is a hallmark of of, of what we're what we're in favour of, for sure. I mean, you know, um, if we if we want to say that sexual intimacy is something which is um, only appropriate in the context of of marriage, um, then yeah, I, I see yeah, modesty in public. Yes, yeah, definitely, definitely goes along with that. I would have thought. Interesting. The argument against is you lose the the public in these kind of puritanical conservative debates that people just look ridiculous. At, you know, because who, who cares yeah. about a, a mild calendar? But um, okay. Yeah, I mean, I look, I'm not saying I'm going to um, get uh, exercised about it for sure. But I mean, what, what I would no, say. You said is exercise, they're not exorcise, just to be yeah, clear. Yeah, You're not going to yeah, exercise exactly. the women who did the calendar. Because you could do that if you got I, past I, the yeah. red tape. You could go and say, woman, and like, get your cross, and just anyone that was in that calendar, you could purge them of their demonic yeah. forces. Expel, expel the demon of lust or of, of voluptuary, 
voluptualism. I don't know what the word would be there. Um, yeah, yeah, but no, I mean, what you could say, the, the whole puritanical thing, and I, I think this is a fairly, fairly decent thing to say, is that actually, you know, the modern world uh, ruins sex and the, and the joy of sex. It's, you know, it's not the way, the way the world does sex is terrible, you know, especially for women. And that's one of the things that Louise Perry, I mean, she articulates that so well in her book. Like most women don't enjoy casual sex. I mean, let's, let's face it, that's, that's the reality. Um, and, and for men, it's a very shallow and superficial experience. It's actually within the context of a loving marriage where you truly share your life with someone that sex, um, sexual intimacy reaches the heights of, of fulfillment and pleasure that, that God intended in the first place. So I think it's a really, you know, it's a really important thing to say there, to, to push back against the notion. I'm not saying you're saying this, but the notion that the, the, the Christian view of sex is puritanical. It's not. It's about using it in the right way, in the way that it brings most flourishing and most pleasure to, to human beings and, and human life. Yeah, I'm almost wondering if I can be bothered launching a counter argument about how incels are sort of in a terrible state and actually there's... There's, that's also a problem. So I don't know, but I'm, I don't know if I can be bothered with the argument. I could I could launch a counter argument about why I can't be bothered though, um, because uh, we're twenty minutes in, which is where most films have the inciting incident. So I'm going to yeah, start yeah. the uh, the proper okay. podcast now, because you know what? I don't know if you if you know anything about film screenwriting theory, but as you're watching a film, something suddenly happens that's going to start the whole plot. If you click on your screen, you'll notice it's nearly always around the twenty minute mark which is where is the right? inciting incident kicks in. Yeah, there'll be some introduction to the story and you'll be like, okay, this is the character. But then there'll be the thing that happens that, you know, forces him into the into the plot. Okay. Does that, what, is that true of documentaries as well? No, is it just fiction? it's, it's fiction. fiction. But if you nearly always, if you click, it'll nearly always be 19, 21, bang on 20. It's, it's, in, it's uncanny. Some really efficient filmmakers will, will get it done quicker than that. But um, it's okay. Always... So, so if it was like Die Hard, for example, would that be the moment when the terrorists take over the Nakatomi Plaza? Would that be twenty minutes in? You've picked the absolute it... worst example for me because one of my shameful things is I I haven't I don't think I've actually watched. Die you Hard. never watched. Die I know, Hard. which is so. I know we'll get I'll get endless emails now, but I can't. I, I honestly find that hard to believe because I would have thought that would be. I've like seen your it's one of those ones I've seen it, but I can't remember if I've actually sat down and watched it all the way through. Or if it's just been on, I know it's shocking and embarrassing and. One of the best things about it is the free son of class that's given to it by Alan Rickman's character because he's obviously like a you know he's a he's a heavyweight actor and it, you know he has this wonderful accent in it and he just the counterpoint between him and Bruce Willis is uh, uh, yeah I can't believe you've not seen that I, just I know you, I know I knew it would upset you I mean it upsets me quite a lot but um yeah but it's kind of that moment there's also it's also tied with the hero's journey there's usually that rejection of the journey isn't there and in the matrix he's like he's not going to do it then suddenly then he has to and it happens in so many films they try and reject this part of the hero's journey they try and reject it but initially but then they they're forced into it or they change their mind or whatever and that's what is it in the matrix then minutes. is it is 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 the conversation with morpheus 20 minutes into the i matrix? need to check where the, where the 20 minute mark is but i remember i remember in the matrix he he is going to follow isn't he then he thinks he's then he's he thinks then he backs out but doesn't he somehow and then he's then he gets mm. back into it. i need to remember exactly how that happens but it, with that there's that scene one of these lives has a future the other does not remember that's that's agent smith yeah and then, he, and then he suddenly that. can't talk with his mouth stuck together oh that, yeah, that's, yeah yeah it's yeah. a classic it's good, good good impression thank you um maybe we'll get into the main substance which is what was going to be me, me moaning about mental health what i was going to ask you i had um so I decided to go on about my mental health problems on my other podcast, The Weekly Skeptic. Who knows why? I just felt like saying it. And then yeah. I got all these emails, and they were mainly very – well, they were all very supportive. 
but some of them were supportive, but also said, you know, you, you shouldn't feel that way as a Christian. They're not really rebuking me when I say shouldn't, but they said, you know, it's why are you suffering with like lack of hope or depression and so on as a, as a Christian? And I, then I wondered if there was a Christian take. And someone even said I should have called you. I think they said that you should, should ask Jamie Franklin. Someone actually said that. And I thought, I'm not sure if Jamie would have appreciated that call, me moaning to him about, well, first depression, then health anxiety would have been a particularly dull call. But um, then well, again, I, as a vicar... Like on people, Christmas or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Christmas Day. It would have been tough for you. But then and I didn't do it. I, didn't, I don't bother people. You know, I'm just too too humble. But, but, um, but as a vicar, that is kind of the sort of thing maybe you do have to deal with. People probably come to you with problems, don't they? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So I thought I'd come to you with this mental health problem and, and, mm-hmm. and like you're a kind of, well, not a therapist, but a vicar, and yeah. tell me what, what your take on it is as a person yeah. and, a, and a Christian and a vicar. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I am a vicar, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm literally, right. literally you're a vicar. Li- I'm sitting, you're wearing the vicar. uniform right now for the yeah, listeners. Yeah, exactly. He's dressed uh, as a vicar. So he's yeah. either a vicar or he's done something with the vicar. And, <laughs> and take take it as close. Although you can you can just order this stuff online, you know, and just wear it. You know, you, you, you don't have to sort of have a card or something to buy it. You know, a special kind of identity card. Right, like when you set up your exorcism company, it's going to be very like you'll have just bought something online. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can't. Yeah, you'd need to get a priest, a proper priest, to bless the holy water. But apart from that, you'd be all right. Um, yeah. So uh, I guess so, Nick. Um, it's it's slightly sort of uh, experimental because we're obviously doing this via podcast um so we're talking to each other but then also there's a wider audience as well so um you know we're just gonna have to feel our way a bit with this but i guess uh, i've listened to the two episodes of the weekly skeptic where you were talking about about these issues um and i suppose that the way i would the way i would proceed you know normally if i was having a pastoral conversation with someone is i would want to hear what they have to say you know, so um, and and a lot of it is just about listening to the other person and sort of trying to understand and then uh, maybe responding in certain ways. Um, but so just I do want to do that. But I suppose one of the things I, I, I think I should say in response to begin with is um, I, I don't know the nature. You know, you say you've had Christians kind of being in touch and saying like this and that and everything like that. Uh, you know, you shouldn't be you shouldn't suffer with depression or you shouldn't suffer with health anxiety or you shouldn't suffer with hopelessness as a Christian. And, um, you know, that this is sort of unacceptable from a Christian perspective, whatever, whatever it was that was said. Um, now I would, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd never say that to anyone because I just don't, firstly, I don't really think it's helpful. And secondly, I don't really think it's true either. And particularly if you look at, um, well, I mean, if you look at scripture, if you look at the kind of problems that the apostle Paul had, which I think in some ways you could describe as mental health problems. I mean, it's slightly anachronistic, but he certainly had a lot of problems, um, a lot of anxieties, and I can I can share some of them from Scripture quite easily. Um, but then also when you look at the history of spirituality as well, and uh, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll forgive me for this, but I sent you a blog I wrote quite late just before we... we um, we started recording this podcast, which is about uh, the notion of acedia, which is a word that most people don't know nowadays, but it was a word that was used by the, the church fathers and by the desert fathers in the early centuries of the church. Um, and it was, it was, it was, it's a sort of catch-all term, um, describes a sort of condition which can variously be uh, characterized as depression, melancholy, burnout, or even midlife crisis or something like that. Sadness, inability to concentrate, swirling thoughts. Check, and check. <laughs> Just yeah. checking off all of those. Yeah, exactly. Middle um, and all of those ones. Carry and on. one of the one of the things I actually mentioned in my blog, which is mentioned, is fantastic book um, called The Noonday Devil, which is by he's he's a, a monk called Jean Charles Nol, who's a French 
French writer. Um, but he, one of the one of the things that's mentioned is actually uh, what we would call nowadays health anxiety or hypochondria, excessive concern for one's for one's physical health. So, and and then the final thing to say about that, I mean, there are many many examples I could bring, but the other thing that comes to mind is Saint John of the Cross, who spoke of the dark night of the soul, and and the point about the dark night of the soul. And again, we're talking about sort of different contexts and different things here. But but the sort of principle is that God doesn't remove our suffering from us necessarily. And in fact, sometimes God takes us into times of real spiritual desolation and darkness. And he does that in order to strengthen the will so that in our wills being strengthened in the direction of love for God and commitment towards him, we then come to a, a deeper relationship with God. And eventually, of course, the dark night of the soul ends and then and then one is renewed spiritually and so on and so forth which is also the case for for coming through the, the process of a cedar as well so anyway I, that's just that all of that is to say that there is a very very strong tradition within christian the christian scriptures and christian spirituality that says that suffering is a fre- frequently experienced part of the spiritual life and and even that people who are incredibly holy committed people it's actually something that um, is, is commonly experienced almost as sort of um, as an intrinsic part of a, of a deeply committed Christian lifestyle that there will be this kind of dark night of the soul, you know, spiritual spiritual depression, whatever you might call it. So there's no sense in which you know, you know, the, the, the promises of of Christianity are just that you will just become sort of happy in a sort of one dimensional sense and you won't have any problems or anything like that. I mean, it's it's far more complicated. So. I don't know if you want to say anything in response to that, but that would just be my sort of first response to that that notion in particular. No, it's good to know. It's good to know because Paul was a pretty tough guy, so it's good to know that he had his problems along the similar lines and St. John of the Cross. So I feel um, better about that. So, yeah, some of these yeah, people have not said it in a nasty way, but they have sort of said, you know, as a Christian, blah, 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 surely, blah, 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 you know, and I just think, well, it's not really helped me when I'm in the struggling with depression or struggling with the, if depression even exists, but Andrew Tate says it doesn't, but... When, I, when I'm struggling with health anxiety in particular, which is so bad that I'm like, it doesn't really help to go, well, what would Jesus do? Although it should, you know, maybe that should help, but I, I maybe I, I don't really manage to do that at the time anyway. It doesn't really, it doesn't help me. So, you know, and then you go, oh, well, what's the point yeah. in being a Christian it's, or it's not, not a proper Christian or something like that? Yeah. I mean, it's not helpful, is it, to have sort of guilt piled on top of your anxiety because you're not you're not doing christianity properly and that's not that's not going to help you yeah and i don't think people realize how bad health anxiety, health anxiety is sort of almost quite grim to talk about depression is a bit more fun to talk about because it's got a long history of you know i talked about the hypos in moby dick and you talk about melancholia and it's got an ancient tradition it's as old as literature but health anxiety hypochondria is also as well i suppose and health anxiety is the more modern sort of clinical sort of uh, what antiseptic kind of term but but um, it is sort of grimly boring because it's just it's just horrifically bad and repetitious, and everyone who experiences it, it is largely the same. They they attach it to different physical things, but it's a largely the same feeling, which is just a repeated feeling that you, you know, you, something terrible is either happening or going to happen with your health, and and you can't really get out of it. You just spiral around it, and the only way I've heard people getting out of it, well, people have got out of it with CBT, other people I know have got out of it with medication where it apparently just stops your brain having that extra thought and it stops you spiraling. Uh, and something else that someone said the other day about the spiraling, I can't remember. Also depends what kind of mind you have. If you have an overactive right mind, some people are too thick to have spiraling introspection 
they they just some some people don't even have an internal monologue. It's hard to prove, but apparently, certain percentage of people don't even have an internal monologue at all. I mean, imagine that they're basically animals, but um, but they're happier. Um, but, but um, I'm not sure that's a Christian perspective. But um, yeah, health and is so bad for me. I mean, which one should we start with? Because hopefully, it's helpful to other people, but it might not yeah, be. Yeah, hopefully. Because there's depression yeah. and there's health anxiety, and honestly. So depression is more like, for me, it's like a lot of it, yeah. well, a lot of it was probably just to do with being alone at Christmas and being ill with a, with a virus. But like, I've also had it my whole life, especially talking about demonic possession. It started for me when I was about 10 and I can track it because there were certain songs on the radio at the time. And when I hear any of those songs, I get immediately this feeling of darkness comes back. So when I was that age, suddenly there was this strange darkness that came in and I was just sort of distraught for like uh, in a very strange borderline supernatural way that's hard to explain. One theory is it was because my friend died when I was eight and I had not processed it in any way and there was no counseling in those days and you just got on with it and no one said what, you know, no one tried to help you in any way. So imagine going to your friend's funeral when you're eight years old and, and you know, trying to deal with that is, um, I was re-watching that documentary, The Jinx. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a brilliant no, true know. crime documentary. It's an extraordinary story. But he goes to his mother's funeral at seven, and he was just saying, you know, that's a disaster, taking a kid to a funeral at seven. I was thinking, too right, mate. I mean, I know you're a psycho, but I do sympathize on that point where, you know, going to a funeral at eight years old and trying to process that, and your friends yeah. died. So it might have been that, but it was a couple of years. It was a little bit later so I really don't know. And, and, and certain songs that shouldn't be sort of sad songs, as soon as I hear them, I think of this darkness I had. So that, since then, I always what, had So it. can I ask Nick, what, kind of, what songs are they? There was a song called, well, there was I'm Still Standing, which must have been, I don't think it was released at that time. It must have been like out again or something. There was yeah. um, the Best for Last, which, do you remember that song? I'm not sure. Um, people will be able to track my age is the problem with this. Um, that song was in 1990, January 92. And then... Um, there was also an erasure song, bizarrely, called Breath of Life. So this is why I've worked out. These were just for some reason on the radio at the time. This is what I worked out. It was 91, 92 sort of time. So there's nothing really inherently depressing about the songs. It just reminds me of that particular time period. And there was also a Levi's advert on the TV, which had the track Mad About the Boy. So I, my problem is my brother's also said to me that I have such a good memory that it probably also makes me, unpo- uh, makes me unhappy <laughs> because he forgets <laughs> everything. Yeah. Um, if I check out, if I Google Man About the Boy Levi's Advert, I see that that's 1992 as well, you see. So I can actually trace it based on the songs. And it's, and I, this advert would come to the tech and I'd just be absolutely like sort of devastated around that time for no real reason. And um, sometimes it was, you know, my parents were out somewhere and I was just alone in the house, maybe on a Sunday night or something, which is always depressing. But I just remember the, this feeling of darkness. And then I don't know if that's when it started or if it started with my friend or if I just always had it. But yeah. I always had this, this sort of melancholic element. So there's that. Uh, and then it got obviously just got worse at various times in my life and has been there the whole time. But then I kind of graduated to anxiety at some point. But I don't know, maybe we should talk about depression first. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm just... Uh, I'm or was just that demonic? Of, no, I, be, I mean, honestly, I don't know. And it's hard to say, isn't it? Um, I mean, the only thing I can really sort of say at this point is that um listening to you talk about that you know it, it may be the case that uh 
that there are certain personal. Well, I think it genuinely is. It's obviously the case that there are certain personality types that are disposed towards melancholy for whatever particular reason. I think I've got a similar disposition. High, high negative emotion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I think I have a similar disposition. And when I was listening to you talk on Weekly Skeptic about creativity, that was definitely something I thought about myself when I was a teenager. That was very sort of depressed, but I was also very creative as well. You know, I'd like to um, write lots of fictional stories and um, write songs and things like that. And I always, I don't know where I got the idea from. It just seemed to be obvious to me that there was a link between that sort of melancholy slash depression and being creative. There seemed to be a there's a sort of creative link between the two things, isn't there? It's almost like one sort of drives you to the other, like writing a, writing a song, for example. You know, where does the sort of emotion and the impetus to write a song come from? It seemed to me at the time that it was about, it was it was like an expression of my misery almost. It was, like, it was almost quite a beautiful thing to be able to take your misery and sort of turn it into something that's actually yeah. aesthetically Morrissey beautiful. Yeah, is the classic example. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there are many, you know, there are many, many examples, aren't there? I mean, you mentioned the Beach Boys, for example. Um, I, I think that that's, and, and there's and there's a sort of edge to those sorts of artists as 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 a result, which there wouldn't be with with artists who, you know, you don't get that same you don't get the same sense from them, you know, that there's a kind of you know that there's this sort of melancholy, this pain that's actually sort of driving the creation of of the, of the art. So I, I used to think that my melancholy, my depression was actually really valuable in that sense. And in fact, that was something Toby, um, I've just I've just listened to the episode, so it's, it's, it's fresh in my mind. But Toby said that about John Cleese, didn't he? That once John Cleese got counselling, he wasn't very funny anymore because he didn't, you know, he didn't have that kind of melancholy that was driving him. So it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because on the, on the one hand, you don't want to sort of say, well, you know, you just need to get rid of that aspect of your personality because because um, because it will make you someone different and you won't, you know, you won't be able to do the same sorts of things. I mean, this might be an inappropriate analogy, but it almost reminds me of, you know, when people say about Premier League football players or any kind of football players, oh, you know, he's got a bit of an edge to his game. <laughs> Roy now, the, the edge, Wait, yeah, really? like, they, have yeah, get, now, they have to get an occasional red card. Yeah, yeah, and nowadays with um, uh, is uh, you know I'm a Spurs fan with uh, Christian Romero, like a great player, but he's aggressive and his aggression sometimes goes too far. And that's that. I don't know whether it's an appropriate analogy or not, but to be a great player in that sense, a kind of defensive player most of the time, it's you need certain amount of aggression. But that aggression has to be sort of in some way um, controlled or directed, let's say. And I, I wonder whether there's a sort of an analogy there. I mean, I'm not trying to suggest anything. I'd love know, to be the conclusive. Roy Keane of podcasting. <laughs> you probably are. I mean, probably, I can't really yeah. think. Of, I can't think of anyone yeah. else. But I mean, tell me about. Tell me about the health anxiety. So you said at some point it sort of morphed into anxiety or you said something like that. Do you see a sort of genealogical link then between the sort of melancholy and the health anxiety? Did that, do they sort of blur into each other? Or? I say graduated to anxiety because I was making a sort of joke that the depression is when you just sort of there, oh, I can't do anything and I'm just sort of sat there. And anxiety is when you actually are up and tackling the world, but just with incredible... Uh, fear all the time so it's like yeah it's a superior yeah. you're like oh I graduated to anxiety because for a long time I just did nothing in my yeah. 20s and this was useless now I get yeah. I'm pretty productive and I present a tv show three times a week and do a couple of podcasts a week one point something million downloads blah blah so I'm yeah. pretty effective but I'm just constantly in dread and <laughs> anxiety so <laughs> it's like I see it as like oh you've graduated to anxiety um yeah but that was sort of a joke because um but yeah health anxiety it's kind of grim but it's it's I basically so yeah, I had a friend die when I was eight. I had another friend die when uh, he was twenty, maybe I was twenty-one or something. And um, and 
that freaked me out a lot, to put it mildly. So I kind of told myself, well, I can't get the disease. I can't get cancer. I'll never get it. Which is a weird yeah. thing. I told myself, and I bargained. You know, it's kind of kind of weird bargaining. Oh, well, maybe I'll get something else, but not that. It's kind of a weird. So I just told myself that very sort of repeatedly and sort of believed it. So then in twenty, did your friends? Did either of your friends die of cancer? Yeah. Both of them, hence, both, hence both the problem. Yeah. Hence, yeah, okay. hence, hence everything. So then I, I said, well, I'll never get that. But, you know, I don't know, this is a weird kind of thing I'd made up. And then in 2016, I got this skin cancer. It turns out to be a mild one. I think I said it on the podcast. It's a mild one, but it technically is. So that kind of broke, seemed to break something where I'd, I'd put up this mental barrier and it's kind of fake magical thinking that I couldn't get it. So after that, everything, I suddenly thought everything was... And I had a cough at the time that I had the skin cancer, and, and a guy said to me, "Maybe that's related," which of course just it was just nonsense. But I then started googling, which of course is terrible. And I mm. um, I got so freaked out, I w- immediately got on the bus and went to the A and E to check myself in. Imagine trying to do that now without a waiting list, and so you wouldn't get anywhere. It's only for people who are literally dying on the spot. But actually, they let me in incredibly. This, this was pre-COVID times, and a, a kindly nurse helped me and gave me an X-ray. Said, "Look, you know, there's nothing. You've got a cough." And I was like. But I literally was in the waiting room, 100% thinking I was definitely dying of lung cancer, like 100% thought it. Mm. And I was thinking, and I was thinking of appealing to God, but I was like, no, but if you look at it objectively, God doesn't stop people dying of lung cancer. So that didn't help me. So I was just like, mm. okay, I'm, I'm dying of lung And I 100% believed it, which now seems to me a bit mental because the, I've had so many far more plausible health anxieties since that always seem, they're always not anything, but they seem like they could be. Whereas that mm. one, I even go, what are you talking about, Nick? Lung cancer, you had no symptoms of it. But I'd Googled something and I'd put in, and it put it together with the other thing. You know, and it, it just comes out with you're definitely dying, as it always does. So um, <laughs> yeah. that was the first time I had the true panic where I actually actually thought my girlfriend was away. I was on my own. She's the one that had pointed out the skin cancer. And I was like, well, I'm dying. And I 100% thought it and was just in a total blind panic. And that's happened now about minimum 12 times since. And it's mm. always something similar. Some some are more plausible than others. Some are just absurd. Some are like a lump in my neck that actually that's that is scary. Turn out it's just it's a lipoma, which is fat cells. But then like other ones are like a foot surgeon told me, or maybe I have a spine tumor. It was a bizarre thing for him to say because I had no symptoms of this. But then I thought I was definitely done. That one seems more insane to me now. Anyway, so I sort of lost this defense against it. And since then, I've always thought I'm, everything is is that. And it's just, it's got so bad. So then I went to therapy. I said, all right, I've got to cut my poor mother I, calling her about it or whoever boring my friends about it. I'm going to have to go to therapy about it, which I finally did, even though it's woke and gay to go to therapy. And I went and um, that didn't seem to really help. He, he, he gave techniques, like the techniques that amounted to not thinking about it, not Googling it, not seeking reassurance from people, which, and I've not poking it and looking at it. And I'd fail on all of those. Mm. But so interesting. So when he said not thinking about it, is there any more to that, or just just, just don't think about it? Because it's quite, it's quite it's quite hard just not to think about. He might not have said that one, but basically the idea was that the behaviours themse- themselves are causing it or exacerbating it. So it's actually if you just don't do the behaviours, it will actually fade. And I certainly found since I've got back to my gym and back to football and everything since after being ill at Christmas, you do have less anxiety. So of course, it is related to not just sitting at home thinking about it. There's all sorts of things, but. I don't know, but what's the Christian? Is there a Christian take on all of this? I, I feel like that was quite a lot of information that's quite boring for most people. No, no, I'm sure. I'm sure it's. Uh, I'm sure it's not boring at all, and I'm sure there are lots of people who 
struggle with similar things. I mean, listen, there's not sort of a Christian take. I mean, there's 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 you know there's broadly speaking, I would say, sort of a Christian approach that one can take in in situations like this. But it's it's to do with you as an individual and to do with your personality, but also to do with, and I think you know this is probably the main thing that I can say to do with you from a spiritual perspective. And that's where I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying in any way that going to therapy or anything like that is, you know, there's no point in it or anything like that, but, you know, listening to this kind of thing, you know, with you or with anyone else, you know, I'm thinking about it with regard to the reality of the spiritual world. Um, you know, I do believe that there's a spiritual world. I believe that you have a soul, that that soul is, um, in in this case, afflicted. Um, now that that may be afflicted in terms of things that have happened to you in your life. I mean, I think even it, it seems to me to be probable that the experiences that you've had, particularly in terms of your two friends dying, have um, yeah, they've it's, it's 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 more than just sort of hurt you. It's created. A, a sense of anxiety, a deep sense of anxiety that the same thing that happened to them is going to happen to you. And it's created a sort of a sense of almost powerlessness in you that like you can't you can't stop it happening. And um, and that that causes you to, you know, sort of freak out when that, that feeling comes upon you. So so there's that clearly. But then there's then there's the kind of spiritual perspective as well. And I'm somebody who clearly believes in the reality of the spiritual world. Um, however, one wants to understand that. I mean, I'm inclined to understand it literally, uh, but you could understand it metaphorically, I suppose. Uh, and I think that Satan and demons want to antagonize us and to make us feel as anxious as possible. Um, eventually, that you know, obviously, the, the 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 enemy wants to literally destroy us, have us, you know, kill ourselves or kill someone else or do something crazy like that. And everything that the enemy wants is to take us down that path, you know, kind of step by step. And um, so I, I suppose that's the main sort of, you know, the sort of start of a 10. That's where I'd, that's where I'd sort of start the conversation around, you know, um, from a spiritual perspective, you know, what, what can be done? What, what does this look like? And it's not, it's not as simple as just saying, well, there's a kind of, you know, sort of quick fix solution or anything like that. It's more like I'm saying you're in the midst of a spiritual battle and you need to realize that and you need to arm yourself against the the wiles of the enemy. That's kind of what I'm saying. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's loads of things. Um, and I can elaborate on any of that. I just don't want to go on for too long. Yeah. I want to hear you know your response. Well, I went on for a long time. Um, well, I thought of several things at once. I mean, I thought, yeah, in terms of suicide, you do, when you, when health anxiety is so bad, because it's just like, you're just in extreme fear for like days on end. And it's actually worse mm. than any normal fear. And I've said this takes on an almost supernatural quality. I, funny, that's, I've actually used that word myself. And I wasn't thinking of demons. I was just thinking that this is so bad that it's almost like worse than anything actually in reality, although it is happening in reality. It's almost worse than whatever the reality would be which Eckhart Tolle talks about a lot in other people that the things you're imagining are actually won't be as bad when they come. But it's almost because it's so many things together. It's kind of like anxiety mixed with these traumas from my child. It's all these things together. It actually feels that it's, a, I can't really describe it, but it's the worst feeling. Like I've had depression for my whole life or been miserable and alone the whole time, but I can cope with a lot of that. But, but the idea of, um, 
but this health anxiety is just so bad. It, it's such a ben, banal term; doesn't really cover it. It's it's like it's like you're, you're, you're there's fear in your gut. You're like in a fight or flight reaction. Then every few seconds, it's going. Well, then you're, you're definitely dying. And then you're going. Well, no, I'm not. Well, yeah, you are. And it just goes around like that for, and you can't sleep, and it goes on for days and days. And it's and it's like then you want to kill yourself, but you don't want to kill yourself. You just want to. It got to the point. I remember the, the lump in my neck when it got to the point after three days that I just said I would rather die. Which, which, yeah. than, than this, which is a paradox, of course, because you're partly it's based in fear of death. But you're like, actually, I just want to be out of this pain, and so you kind of bargain with it. You just like, oh, I'll just, you would accept. And I started to think also, what if you had to die at the end of the year at a set time? Would you actually take that? Like, that's not as scary to me. So it's weird. It's, it's partly it's the uncertainty that you're battling with. You know, like if I could just have a set time, because it's obviously ostensibly a fear of death, but it's it's not. But then you actually get to the point where it's worse than actual the prospect of death incredibly so it's like so that's strange but um and on suicide in general i'm very obviously christianity is against it i'm not going to do it so by the way if it, if it happens it is a matrix attack just for the listener it wasn't me it was the matrix so so check everyone check epstein um check the tech check you know not that i had anything to do with epstein but just i've been epstein is what i'm trying to say mm. um yeah yeah my cousin killed himself when, when he was 17 and that after that i was like i'm definitely not going to do that he actually did do it. And I saw the difference between someone who actually does go through with it. And I was like, right, this has destroyed his family and to some degree mine. I'm not going to do that. And that was, you know, so that's not going to happen. But, um, yeah, and, I, I, and I'd mess it up anyway. But it made me think as well, I just, when you were talking, I just suddenly thought of that phrase again in Taxi Driver where he says a man should not devote himself to morbid self-attention. It made me think, you know, you've got kids and stuff. Am I just some guy who's, too old, doesn't have kids, you know, too old to be living like I do and just lives a sort of life of morbid self-attention, you know, just self-indulgent, navel-gazing misery. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, do you, want, do you want me to come in there, Nick? Yeah, that's, finish a, what that's you're an saying? actual question. Yeah. Um, well, I think from, you know, from my perspective as a, as a, as a priest and a pastor, you know, what I would say the Lord wants for you above all else is to have a relationship with Christ and for that to bring you a sense of peace and joy and for that peace and joy to kind of overflow into the world and to create an abundance around you. Now, that might be in the context of a family. You know, you don't know, you don't know what's going to happen to me. You can have a family, and especially as a man, you can have a family at any age, can't you? So there's not, you know, it's not like you're, you're beyond that as a sort of possibility uh, in any sense. Um, but then there's also um, the sense in which you can you can be incredibly, you can have an incredible abundance as a single person as well. I mean, I don't even like that phrase. There's an, you know, the more sort of biblical word would be unmarried or something like that. You know, as somebody who's not married, you have time and energy to spare to serve the Lord and to serve other people that you you don't have when you're a when you're a father. You know when when you have a family, your children and a wife take up most of your energy. And and you know doing my parish ministry here, for example, it just there's there's so much less of me left over after that than there would be if I were a single man. It's just you know it's 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 just it's it's hard to even sort of describe it's like you're giving out of the dregs if you know what i mean of yeah. your energy in your mental space the dregs we're getting like now of you 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, imagine imagine how good this would be if I if I was a single man. Yeah, imagine how imagine how amazing this would be. So anyway, so all all that says that there's a, there's an abundance there's an abundance um, to give. You know, whether that's given to your, primarily to your family and then elsewhere, or whether it's just given elsewhere. You know that that's what the Lord wants. I give. Um, I seem to give also, it to these podcasts instead, don't I? People are always well, love the, they're so appreciative. Maybe not of this one, which is quite grim, yeah, but yeah. of the other ones. Oh, well, hopefully they are of this one as well. I mean, we're, talk, we're having a real conversation, aren't we, here? But another thing I'd say, Nick, is I just, I just encourage you to sort of recognise the demonic um, provenance of the, the sentiment that you've just outlined, which is like, don't, you know, sort of like, you shouldn't even be thinking about this. Like, don't even try and address it because this is, you know, because it's not even a legitimate thing to think about. I would say that I think that that's like a, that's a demonic notion. Of course you should be thinking about it. It's your life. You're absolutely miserable a lot of the time by your own admission and you're struggling with incredible incredibly high levels of anxiety why i mean you know you've only got you've only got your own life i mean what what else could you be thinking about that's of any more importance than this so you know i, I think that whole that whole notion you know i just think recognizing recognizing the origin of thoughts like that or at least being suspicious of them i think is is a good place to can i read you can i read you something of that blog i sent you over and this is this is my own this is my own writing but it's based on this book um the noonday devil which is about acedia so i've i've already told you about five these sort of manifestations i haven't necessarily said five but the manifestations of acedia but and one of which is an exaggerated concern for one's one's health um but he gives in this book um jean charles Noll, he gives sort of five strategies that were used by the desert fathers for overcoming acedia um one of which is one of which is tears, uh, and he writes to weep over one's sinfulness and to acknowledge one ne- one's need to be saved by God. And um, quotes uh, the Sermon on the Mount: "Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted." Words of Christ. And then he talks about Saint Anthony, Saint Anthony of Egypt, who is one of the great desert fathers. Saint Anthony says, "I want to be saved, but my thoughts do not let me go." In reality, in saying that he wants to be saved, this is Jean-Charles Null here. In reality, in saying that he wants to be saved, he has already somewhere conquered the demon of Isidia. So there's a sense in which as we attempt to conquer the demon of Isidia or whatever we want to call it, actually identifying it in the first place is useful just in itself to recognise that we're in a spiritual battle, that there's an enemy and that the enemy has a certain strategy and that he's trying to lead us in, into certain places. So once one has identified a CD for what it is, or whatever we want to identify, one is already on the course to defeating it, which in, in itself is an encouraging thought. I don't know what you make of that. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the um, the concept of a stoical acceptance a little bit. It's slightly different maybe, but it, it's some things, that, this is not exactly the same, but it just reminds me, some things people have suggested are just, leaning into the fear i've definitely heard this one I, and i can do it at times where you just say okay then bring on the maximum level let's bring it on and you just you accept it. you don't try and resist it and that can be can work temporarily at least you sort of go okay then let's just and and there's a sort of that's a sort of more sort of stoical acceptance approach of which is maybe not exactly what he's saying there but it just reminds me which is just you, you accept it completely and you go okay and another thing that's helped slightly but not loads is a the stoic idea, I think it came out of someone's reading, someone was doing a YouTube video about Seneca is where I got this, is that, is that you've already sort of been dying for like several decades. And so when you're fearing death, particularly, it's like, it's like, 
well, actually, most a lot of it's already happened, which is kind of like <laughs> is weirdly comforting for, for people with health anxiety babies. Like, oh, yeah, it's, it's actually already it's just an ongoing process. So but is that the same as what he said there about it? that? He sort of that's maybe what he's saying there is an awareness of it. Maybe that's a little bit like when Eckhart Tolle, sorry, going about Eckhart Tolle, some people think it's silly, but I like him. But he, that's like an awareness that at least it's happening is that this voice well, is attacking you is the beginning of it. It's not coming from the essential you or something. It's some sort of thing that's happening to you or I don't yeah, know. Yeah, in identifying the thing for what it is. Right. I mean, you and as I say, you can think about it metaphorically or you can think about it literally. Um, however, however you want to. I mean, as I say, I'm inclined to think about it literally because I believe in the reality of the spiritual world identifying it for what it is and saying, you know, this is this is the demon of acedia or this is the demon of whatever it might be, you know, demon of anxiety or whatever, and it's attacking me. Um, because do, do just, you say that literally? Because that, that is inter- cause that's interesting because the idea, so when when people like Toll talk about, he, he said something like, why are you, people say, oh, I'm doing this to myself, you know, I'm doing having all these thoughts, like, are you, or why are you doing it? Is it you? And it's like, why would I repeatedly attack myself with yeah, thoughts yeah. for days? So is it actually yeah. happening to me? But then if it is, it is, isn't that like victim mindset? Or is that just an acknowledgement that I'm not really in control of this? This seems to be an assault on, on me yeah. on some level. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the latter. I mean, it, absolutely. So, so I mean, I, I'll try to think about this a bit before we have this conversation and try to relate it to my own experience. But um, yeah, so um, stuff I struggle with is different to you. And it's not, it's not the same in any way. But um, just to sort of bring it to my experience, the the the, the thought that the the feeling that I struggle with most most of the moment is I'm not going to have enough time, and that that might sound like not not a big thing, but that actually causes me quite a lot of anxiety, and it's the main thing I struggle with in my life. And I'm convinced that the devil uses that to make me feel as anxious and as distracted as possible. So in the morning I wake up, and you know, say I'm trying to pray. Frequently I have these thoughts. I've got so much to do today. There's so much to do. How am I going to do it all? I'm not going to have enough time. And a lot of the time, it's not even articulated clearly in my mind. It's just a kind of gut feeling. And so I start racing through the stuff that I need to do. I need to do this. I need to do that. What order am I going to do it in? Blah, blah, blah. And my mind is taken away somewhere else, not focused on the present. And that, that's, a, that's a, I think, a major feature of sort of demonic attacks. Is it, it wants to take your, you know, it wants to displace your, your thinking from, from the present moment. Because the present moment is the only place we can be happy. We can't really be happy if we're lost in nostalgia about the past or, or, or regret about the past or in anxiety about the future. We have to be present in the moment in order to, to really know peace. So a lot of the time it's that kind of thing. You know, swirling thoughts. And, and an attempt to make one feel confused, distracted, melancholic, so on and so forth. So I'm just saying that I think when, you, when one realizes that, when one, one recognizes, look, this isn't just something that's going on in my mind. This is a demonic attack. You know, Satan wants to distract me. He wants to make me to feel anxious. He wants to make me feel irritable. He doesn't want me to do my job properly. Uh, he, want, he doesn't want me to be a good witness for Christ and, and so on and so forth. And and that's why he and that's his best tactic at the moment. But he uses different tactic for different people. So for you, for example, and I'm not saying this is you know a sort of definite diagnosis or anything like that. But for you, you've suffered trauma and loss and grief at a very very early age, and then it happened again later. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if that was a, you know, sort of if you like, a very sort of open natural sort of naturally open doorway for demonic attack. Does it? Does that make sense? It's it's a it's a wound that's in you, and it's like, just Satan is just very very happy to sort of just niggle away at that and make that as bad as possible. Yeah, because that's why I said on the podcast. I think um, the other one, 
we'd accept it that it, it, I don't have it about other health things. That's why I think it's related to those incidents in my life because I don't have it about heart attacks, even though I've got slightly high blood pressure. And, you know, I was saying I play on football and my heart rate gets very high. So I don't think, oh, I'm going to die on the football field. And sometimes I do, and I go, I, but I don't have any fear response to it. I just go, yeah, maybe. But if I read about, and if I hear about someone that's died of a stroke, I go, okay, they've had a stroke. But if I hear about someone that's died of a particular type of cancer, then I get the fear and I think, what if I had that type of thing? And, spend about half an hour thinking about that so like you say that's an open and uh, other things i go they don't but even things like some people have fear of flying even that i can get on the i haven't been on planes since 2017 but if i had you know i just you can go yeah i suppose it could crash but what can i do it's up to the pilot and you sort of give up control i had a minor car crash just before work a few months ago and that felt a bit weird about getting cars for a couple of days but then i was like yeah i sort of again and i think to myself that's more statistically likely I think to myself, Nick, you're struggling with this health anxiety. You're about to go to, in this taxi. It's more likely you'll have a crash in London in a taxi with all these people who, some of them don't even have licenses on the road. Far more statistically likely, but even then I'm able to give up and sort of go, okay, what can I do? I'm just, he's the driver. But in, with this one area, I'm not able to 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 accept that lack of control at all. And um, though I am able to do, funny you say about do your job properly. That's one thing I am able to do. I'll go on headliners on GB News and just be completely... My mom said, hey, you were even better than normal on that one, even though she knew I was like in just just total mess at home. So I, I was, I'm impressed that I'm able to – that's good, isn't it? I'm able to be professional despite immense misery. And But um, it's interesting your one is about not enough time. And there's always a plausible element. Like logically, you do have not much time. You've got – what is it? Do you have two or three kids? You have I've got four children. Oh, four. There you go. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I'd even take yeah. them on off. I mean, that, of course you don't have enough time. You've got four kids. You've got to – You've got to look after all these people in your in your parish, and you've, you've got all these podcasts and stuff. You're, there is an element that you actually don't have enough time. You maybe need a time management system, but then there's also an element that, like you say, is a, is a, is a sort of demonic or spiritual or uh, nagging thoughts element that's not real. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And ultimately, so for me, and uh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to sort of um, keep right reading things I. I right but you you always do this on the weekly skeptic with your, your, <laughs> your tweets it. and um this is actually from something i'm going to release on my blog this week um but ultimately i think the for me anyway i'm just saying this for me um when these things happen it's a it's a it, we've got to see it as an invitation to trust in the lord's sufficiency for us from day to day so for me like I don't have enough, you know, I just think to myself, don't have enough time, blah, blah, blah. Thoughts, swirling thoughts, anxiety, um, fear, and it robs me of my my joy. You know, I just, uh, it makes life miserable. You start feeling miserable. Um, okay, so what do I do about it? And I, I, again, I, I'm not saying I've mastered this and, you know, even just thinking about it for the for this conversation is, is, is helpful, but ultimately it's got to be something that's rooted in trust in God, that God will supply me with what I need to do the things that he's called me to do. And I feel like there's a lot of stuff. I'm writing a book as well. The book, deadline for the book is the end of May. It's a lot, lot of work to be done on that. You know, so I've got that, I've got the podcast, I've got the church, I've got the four children, I've got my wife, all wonderful things. But you see like how the devil twists it and makes it something awful <laughs> because it's like, well, I just don't have time for all of these things. And now I feel miserable and depressed and anxious. So, but no, the Lord's given me these things. He's given me these, these are opportunities. These are callings and he will supply me with the, the, what I need in order to do them. And it might be that sometimes, 
you know, I'm doing these things the best that I can. And it might be sometimes I have less time than is optimal for, say, writing a sermon or something like that. But I have to trust that the Lord is going to give me what I need to write the sermon, even if, I've, even if I don't have, even if I have enough time. Oh, sorry, even if I don't have enough time in a, in a, in a, in a normal sense. So I was going to read something, but actually I'm not going to do that because I've basically articulated it anyway. So I think all I'm saying is, uh, for me, the, the response has to be rooted in, in trust in God and enjoying close to God. I don't know what the answer is in that sense for you, but obviously I'm going to say this because I'm a priest. <laughs> you know, It's got to be that kind of answer. Yeah, and in the moment, that's certainly never helped me, but it might be because I'm not doing enough Christian stuff. The only thing, as I say, that's ever helped me is Eckhart Tolle. And even that I was mildly embarrassed by because, you know, the power of now, it sounds like one of those sort of self-help books. It's been on Oprah and the kind of people I talk to think that it's embarrassing. Someone in the office said that, oh, he's a fraud and just didn't care about the extreme misery I'd just been through for four days and just, and just said that without even researching him. Mm. But he, of course, I don't think he is a fraud, actually. I think his, his story is amazing. And even if the story is not true, just in just listening to him, you can tell he's sort of got something about him. But um, but why was I talking about that? Um, I suddenly can't remember. I went through too many tangents in my in my own uh, in my own <laughs> sentence there, and I'm down like the Russian I'm dog. Slightly tired. Um, what what was your comment just before that? Oh, oh I was yeah. I was just I was just talking about how the response. Oh yeah, gee, yeah, yeah whether, whether Christianity. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, nothing has helped me except Eckhart Tolle, and even and even Christianity hasn't. Um, mm. Which you know I feel vaguely bad about as well. I mean it's it should help me, but it hasn't. So there it is. You know. It, I mean, can I can I sort of. Explore. Can I just explore that a little bit with you? Yeah. So, um, and I, I'm partly, I'm partly just um, mindful of the time. Not that I want to rush or anything. And hopefully, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on call. That my dinner will be ready at some point. So, um, hopefully, we'll be able to speak for a little bit longer. Um, so, so you literally don't have enough time again. You see, but then, yeah, but then the Lord will provide, won't He? That's that's the whole point. In the time that we've got left, the Lord will provide um, what we need. So I suppose, you know, just to try and sort of cut to the chase with this kind of thing. And this is a big if I'm about to say, but, you know, if I were in your situation and if I were thinking, if I were having these attacks, um, one of the things that occurs to me that I think I would want to be thinking about is the notion of, you know, put it broadly, um, God's providence and my mortality. Because, I mean... This is about death, really, isn't it? It's about the fact that you're you're worried that you're going to get, you know. I mean, obviously, I'm just, you know, I'm I'm summarising here because you've ex- you've explained this in in great detail, and it's much more complicated than this. But essentially, there's an anxiety that you're going to get cancer and you're going to die, right? Was that that's basically right? Yeah, and I've ended up concluding that it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I've realised, like certain at certain levels, you you would rather have death. So it's not just. So, but then again, you wouldn't be afraid of the illness if it didn't lead to death. So it's yeah, specifically though that that sequence, it's even it is death, but it's actually that particular method for some reason. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, so there's two things which perhaps they're different from each other, but they're certainly related. Which is the 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 getting of cancer, e.g., cancer, and then and then death. And you know, there's a sort of there's a relationship between those two things clearly, although you want to differentiate between the two. So I guess from a sort of if, if we bring God into the conversation, you know, and we, we imagine that there is a real God and that Christianity is true, that God, God loves us, uh, that Christ died for us, and um, that if we put our trust in him, we will know him 
eternally. Um, so it's got to be something like, um, okay, so maybe I will, maybe I will get cancer at some point, or maybe I will suffer terribly at some point. And even if that happens, then it will still be okay because God will be with me, and it will be within His providential purposes for my life that I'll get cancer and I'll suffer, and that's that's okay. Um, and 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 it, it reminds me of it, like I said, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, the Apostle Paul, you know. Um, 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh, which is given to him, messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So it's got to be something like that. It's, it's like, well, I plead with the Lord for this to leave me. OK, maybe it will leave me, but maybe it won't. Even if it doesn't, even if the thing happens that I'm worried about, the Lord will still be with me. His grace will be sufficient for me within my suffering, within my anxiety, even within cancer, even within terminal illness and death. And so I think I think it's got to be something like that. And then death itself. And this, of course, this is easier said than done. But death itself is something that um, Jean-Charles Noel speaks about in this book, uh, particularly in, in the context of acedia. Um, and I'll, I'll read this because I, I think I did actually put this quite nicely in the blog I sent you. Um, meditation upon death, which again is part of Christian tradition of spirituality, you know, sort of memento mori type thing. Meditation on death. This might sound morbid, but it's really to remind ourselves that our life has a linear progression towards God and eternal life. As we meditate upon our end, that is our telos, our meaning, our purpose, our direction, we recognise more clearly the meaning of our existence and our actions are given a new perspective in the light of that orientation. This is why it's worth praying, reading scripture, following Christ and, 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 and doing our work and so on, because our lives are going somewhere. They're, they're, they're orientated towards, towards certain, a certain end. And in this life, the way things are, death is a part of that. Now there is a sense in which death is an enemy because it's not it's not it's not what we were supposed to experience or at least not in the way we do experience it. But there is another sense in the way, in which death is actually, if we approach it in faith, it's a gateway to the presence of Christ into eternal life. And and as we think about it in that way, that actually means that our lives are not orientated towards just annihilation or obliteration, but towards a certain type of purpose with death as a kind of staging post on the way there. So I guess those would be the kind of thoughts, easier said than done, but those would be the kind of thoughts that I'd be wanting to encourage. Okay, very interesting. I'm going to listen back to it again on my own podcast to, to listen to that more because um, there's a lot there. Okay. Um, and when you said we're not supposed to experience death like that, you meant because of the fall and... Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is, uh, as as with all things, Nick, there is some scholastic kind of um, debate about what death actually means. Um, and I may have said this to you before, but in um, in uh, C.S. Lewis actually takes this theme up in his great sci-fi book, Out of the Silent Planet, where he actually the the main character travels to. I think it's. Is it is it Mars he travels to? I think, and anyway, it turns out that the rest of the solar system is unfallen, and um, on Mars there's a there's this kind of race of this conscious race of creatures that hasn't undergone the fall. But it's interesting because some of the creatures, well, the creatures still die, but that death is seen as a kind of benign thing, a translation to a higher a higher um, dimension of experience. But without the 
sense of loss and grief and absurdity that we experience as human beings. So all of that to say is that that was a genuine, that has been a genuine speculation throughout theological history. Maybe, maybe we would, if there were no fall, maybe there would be some kind of thing which we would under, which we would see as death, but it would be, it would be a completely different thing. It'd be a kind of translation into the presence of God. And it wouldn't have that sense of grief, doubt, absurdity, pain that we associate with death, which certainly are effects of the fall. Yeah. Yeah, because there's almost a whole other conversation I have about that. I mean, obviously the fear of death, the fear of not being there anymore, the strangeness of that. There's all that sort of stuff, which is a little bit separate from health anxiety. It's not completely separate, but that is a whole... I mean, I've had that many times in my life as well. Lately, I don't have that as much as I just have the health anxiety, to the point where, like I say, when the health anxiety is at its absolute peak, you say, okay, if I just don't wake up tomorrow, that would be fine with me. I'd choose that. You actually, when it's that bad, you would actually choose that. You can't really choose that because that's not going to happen, but... But you think, oh, because you just want to be out of it at that point. But the fear of death is a really interesting one, and one I've had massively throughout my life, of course, as well. It's all in Woody Allen's uh, movie, Hannah and Her Sisters. He has all this. He has a health anxiety. He goes, he gets the all clear, then he, he's celebrating, then he suddenly realizes, but that's the thread. He goes, do you realize what a thread we're all hanging by? And it's the case all the time. And he has this whole thing. And he thinks about killing himself because and because it's not good enough for him that he doesn't know what happens and that, that life might be meaningless. And he goes to the Catholics and the harry christians and all this in the end he's yeah. saved by a groucho marx film but but and it's funny because you talk about joy and he he almost called i know Woody Allen's not a popular figure anymore he almost called annie hall anhedonia which is of course the inability to experience joy might not have won the oscar over star wars if you called it that but but i of course have had i have that as well and just a little thing on this i know you've got to go no, no, it's okay. I've got until i've got 10 minutes okay. so that's okay well yeah. i just wanted to say whether we should talk about these things you know because i sort of like it or not, and without wanting to sound pompous, I'm sort of some sort of kind of leader, I've realized, because it's kind of, a, just because so many people have said to me, we get hope and enjoyment and solace from your podcast, and we realize we're not crazy. It's, a big one. it's quite funny that someone as crazy as me, one of the things I give to people is that they realize they're not crazy listening to me. But um, mm. um, are you just are you still typing on your blog? Is it, sorry, because it's... No, no, I'm looking up a quote oh, okay. by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, okay. which I'd like to share oh, with we'll you. Do that I'm, I'm listening. No, no, it's because the typing is quite loud and people might be like, he's typing, <laughs> Jamie's just typing. Um, <laughs> it's all part but, of the Rogan, yeah, it's all the part Rogan of it. vibe. Um, yeah. But there's one thing about, and you're in a similar situation, you're obviously a leader of your parish and then you've got your irreverent podcast, which I always forget to mention at the start. And the funny thing about that is fighting wokeness and saying things on on the telly and on these podcasts, people call it brave and it is there is a fear of cancellation but i don't take much credit for it really it's just how i am i just say these things it's just like of course i'm going to say them and it'd be i couldn't not say them and it's whereas in these personal areas i'm obviously struggling a lot more and, and you could say it's, it's quite strange someone who can go on a na- national tv and say tommy robinson had a point about <laughs> lots of things you know or some incredibly like uh, unpopular statement but i can just do that uh, because i i have that's just i have to but whereas these things, I'm obviously like struggle, and it's like, should you admit them and talk about them? And there is an argument that if you, even if you are some sort of leader, it's perfectly fine to to share your concerns. But is there an element where you shouldn't talk about them, and you should just be like, oh, it's up to me to give hope to other people? Well, I don't know. I mean, I I tend to be fairly open about things, and I don't think there's really any point pretending. I mean, one of the things it does. So on the one hand, you could say, well, it's a weakness. But on the other hand, you could say that it actually requires more strength to contend with the things that you have to contend with and yet still do the things that you do 
And it's it's resilience, isn't it? If you don't have the resistance, you don't need resilience. So you obviously have these problems you're describing, which are probably more extreme than most most people experience in the areas of anxiety and depression. But you undoubtedly have to, well, you will have had to have acquired much greater levels of resilience than normal people because you don't because you don't have the same kind of you know uh, benign <laughs> serene disposition that lots of lots of people have and they just you know they just coast through life because they don't they don't have these same challenges that's one way it might be related actually is that things seem not a big deal to me bizarrely like a little mark on my face that could be skin cancer seems a massive deal to me but the culture war although it is depressing and, and, and crap but massive events don't seem even like I mean, my aunt also died of cancer, by the way, but even at her funeral, I'll be the one that's not crying and stuff. I'll be sort of like actual big uh, things happening. I'm so primed because my life's such an ongoing horror show that I, when actual things happen, I'm like, I'm usually quite, even even when I actually got skin cancer, by the way, the guy's like, oh, we should just cut that off now. I was like, okay, cool. And I went through it and I was actually kind of, the reality I'm like weirdly able to just take. It's all my own mind that's the problem. But, mm. but culture war stuff, you know, saying stuff on national TV, you know, I'm not when things actually happen that other people think are a big deal, I often think they're not a big deal, either personal mm. or, or on the macro. It's quite interesting because it basically pales in comparison to the kind of misery of my actual mind, you know, or, or Twitter spats and stuff. Some of the things people having back and forth on Twitter, even though it's not nice to have a Twitter pile on, I've definitely been through that and it was horrible. But mm. all these things people worry about, I just sort of look at them and think they seem so silly because when you're locked in these existential battles all the time, they seem even though the existential mm. battles are in your mind, that seems far worse. So maybe it yeah. actually lets you tackle things in the culture more. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I don't know. Obviously, your your job and, and your engagement is different to mine. Um, uh, but there's a sort of interesting overlap, isn't there, between what we do on our respective podcasts. Um, I, I suppose one of the things I'd say is that just engaging in the culture war I mean, you, you do this on your podcast, you, you, don't you? And I don't know what I said to you when you said to me, you know, how do we win the culture war? That's how you often end your podcast, isn't it? By asking people how, how, you end, how they end the culture war. Um, I don't know. I don't actually know if you've ever asked me that question. And I'm not, I'm not going to try and answer it. But, but whatever, the, whatever the answer is, is it's got to be something to do with Christ and the gospel. Um, and, and when we, and I've done this at points, when we just engage with the enemy, you know, just fight tooth and nail, you know, just try and defeat the enemy using using his own weapons, then it will ultimately destroy us as well. You know, it, it reminds me of the Friedrich Nietzsche quote, which I'm certain you'd have heard, you know, when you look long and deep into the abyss, the abyss looks into you. You know, be careful that you don't make war with monsters because in making war with monsters, you'll become a monster yourself. You know, that sort of thing. Nietzsche was, you know, he's clearly, he's clearly seeing something that's quite true there. That's what I feel about the culture war is that if you engage with it too much, if you don't have the armor of God, it's going to chew you up, destroy you because it's it, you're 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 engaging with something which is very very twisted and dark and which will suck the life and the joy from your soul. So that's the only thing I'd say about that. Yeah, and it is true that I often think. Well, I've had the thought, you know, I just want to be out of this culture war. It's so miserable. But then I've had the second thought. Well, no, of course, you, of course, you think it's a war. Who enjoys a war? You have to win it, and it's up to people like me to win it. And 
you know, I just I see it that way. And quite a few people, when all, it was all those sackings at GB News, a couple of people told me they were getting out of this culture war. But they were both women, and I thought, yeah, maybe they should be out of it. They've got other things to do. They've got families, and that's going to sound horribly patriarchal. I thought, as well as Nick, you're just some guy on his own. Who who can fight the culture war if not you? You know, you don't even have four kids like you. So I think it, for some reason it is up to me to do it. But it ought yeah. to be a tiny part of it. But, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. What was yeah. your? And I'm not. I'm not saying there's any illegitimacy to that at all. I'm just saying that, just from a this perspective as a as a pastor. I mean, you know, this is a slightly odd pastoral encounter because it's on a podcast and there are other people listening. But you know, if I were just in a pastoral encounter with you, one of the things I would be saying is, um, it, to encourage you to draw. To draw from an inner strength that comes from your relationship with Christ in engaging with these issues, and also allowing that to. Um, characterize the way you engage as well to engage in a godly way um, and not in the same spirit as those who would engage with you and that's honestly that is what I try and do on on our podcast and I don't know uh, there are clearly times when I haven't been very good at doing that but that's what I that's what I do try and do okay interesting and on the last thing on the culture was it's not that I meant to fight a culture I just tell the truth and that's it really yeah yeah for sure and it's just this autistic truth-telling men who are going to save the world um but uh, that's all, and, and some women. But that's all we can do. So, what was your Bonhoeffer quote? Yeah, it was just. It was actually. I mean, it it, remind, it relates to what we were talking about earlier. So, as the conversation has slightly moved on, but I was. It just came to mind when we were talking about death. Um, so he writes. I mean, this is actually a quotation from that book by Eric Metaxas about Bonhoeffer. Um, I'm sure these are these are Bonhoeffer's own words. How do we know that dying is so dreadful? Who knows whether in our human fear and anguish we're only shivering and shuddering at the most glorious, heavenly, blessed event in the world. And this is the bit I really remembered that I was looking up. Death is hell and night and cold if it is not transformed by our faith. But that is just what is so is so marvellous, that we can transform death. That's what I was thinking about. If it's not transformed by our faith, so death is hell and night and cold. If there's no faith, of course, that's what it is. It's, it's just, it's nothing. It's obliteration. It's the annihilation of everything we have. But if we have faith in Christ, death itself can be transformed. And that's one of the most marvellous things about the message of the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. But the, the ego gets afraid because we know that the person ends as we know him. And if it's going to be, it's going to be something very different. It's not going to be you, you with your name and your same concerns. It's going to be your soul. I don't know exactly how it's going to work. But the, mm. so you, of course, even if it's glorious, as, as elucidated there, the ego gets afraid because it's like, well, what about my um, podcast? You know, so it's... <laughs> I always think of it that way. It's what, like, it's definitely, we, we know it's not going to be the same person. No one's ever come back as the same person with the same name and circumstances because they're locked in that particular time and place. So it must be that your soul, it, it, you know, goes wherever. But that's obviously, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the things I'd say about that, though, is that um, it reminds me of something I heard Rowan Williams talking about. Um, he put it very well. I won't be able to put it as well. But, you know, if we see our lives as a about a cultivation of a relationship with God, which God has initiated out of his love through Jesus Christ, we grow closer to him through this through this life, then it would be a really unnatural thing to see death as just the sort of termination of that relationship. Rather, as we consider that relationship, we see that it will have continuity beyond death because God didn't just begin this relationship with us and, and cause us to grow in love and in intimacy with him in order to sever it at death, but, but in order that it might continue. And that's, yes, 
I mean, we could we could do another podcast about Christian eschatology if you like. So I'm gonna have to go in a minute. There were, clearly there's the, clearly there's a change when we die. I mean, it would be ridiculous to suggest that there isn't. But the continuity is in terms of God's saving love for us and that relationship that He has begun with us in this life that will continue. Uh, that that will that will remain. So yeah, there's discontinuity obviously there, but then there's a profound sense of continuity as well. All right. Great ending. I'm not sure what the atheist listeners can do with that, but I was going to say it's been a great podcast, not just for our Christian listeners. And I thought, what if it's not actually been a great podcast for the non-Christians, but I just suddenly, all that was happening in my head as I said that one thing. But I think it's been a great podcast. Um, and my podcast have been accused of being quite heavy. I'd say this one definitely qualifies, but I chucked <laughs> in a few jokes as well. Uh, where do you yeah. want to send people at the moment, Jamie? Obviously, the Irreverent podcast. Yeah. So my yeah. So the podcast website is irreverentpod.com, and that just has links to everything on there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I read from my uh, blog earlier, jamiefranklin.substack.com, which is um, I actually I work as a priest part time, so I actually rely on my online income. So if people want to. Um, subscribe to my Substack, that'd be really, really handy. And I wrote about devotional stuff there and I wrote about my my own life and things that I'm doing as well. And people might find that interesting. Um, so yeah, jamiefranklin.substack.com, they could go there as well. And follow me at uh, jamiefranklin40 on Twitter as well, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter. Absolutely, do all of those. And my Substack is nickdixon.substack.com. I'm going to try and post more on it this year. Or you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash nickdixon. And thank you for all your amazing donations, particularly in my in light of my mental health outburst, there's been so many donations. So it's a great, it is a great marketing yeah. tactic. That's why I'm continuing to rinse the mental health angle. So buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon, contribute to my medical bills. Um, just kidding, guys. You contribute to the fight against evil <laughs> in the culture war and uh, our, our new business we're launching and all those things. And um, do you have any thoughts about the new year, Jamie, or, or resolutions or things you want to do this year? Yeah, well, I've got some health resolutions. So I'm trying to do 150 workouts this year. So that's one. And that's actually very, I mean, you've, you've talked about that on the, the Weekly Skeptic, haven't you? I mean, exercise is, you know, the spiritual stuff is clearly very important, but exercise is really important as well. I, for your... Yeah, that's great. I do, I do, sorry, I do three strength training a week. So that's about to be 156. Yeah. Though sometimes my guy's on holiday. So yeah, we're probably talking about a similar amount. Though yeah, if you added my yeah. football and my runs, I'll probably... Yeah. You'd you'd exceed that for sure, but yeah, so yeah, that's for me. Three three strength trainouts, training workouts a week, and then um, yeah, miss miss a couple, and then make it up with four or whatever. Um, I'm just I'm going for fifty books as quickly as possible. Basically, this is an experiment just to try and sort of kickstart my reading for the year. I, I don't know how long it will take me, um, but I'm just trying to do that. Uh, partly because I started about ten books last year and I hadn't finished them, and I want to finish them all. One of which is the Noonday Devil, by the way, that I've been reading from this podcast. So that's another that's another resolution. And then just the other stuff is just to you know just keep up my sort of spiritual devotions. And I think it's quite a good I think it's quite a good time of year to sort of bring yourself back to what you're trying to do anyway, if that makes sense. So like as a priest, you know, one of the things I'm supposed to do is say morning and evening prayer, and that's challenging, particularly in the evening. Not so much in the morning for me, but in the evening it can be quite challenging. You know, after a long day getting four children to bed, doing the washing up, clearing up and everything. Um, but it's something that I, I'd like to you know, really, really try and do well this year. So that's another thing as well. How about you? Have you got resolutions? Do you know what, Jamie? It's, it's, a, it's a bleak answer, but I was struggling so much being so depressed over Christmas that I had no hope. So I saw no point in resolutions because I had no right. hope for my life. <laughs> so I mm -hmm. didn't yeah. have it. So I didn't come up with any resolutions. And um, I'm also, the funny thing is I'm doing a lot of the stuff, you know, 
I'm doing my workouts. I'm doing my two podcasts. I'm launching a new business. I've just moved to a new flat. You know, I got a new contract at work. Like I did all these achievements. I looked at my achievements last year. We had two successful live shows. My professional achievements were all locked in. I suppose my only resolution for my personal life was absolute nightmare. So my resolutions would all be about personal life and mindset, but I haven't formulated them Mm. yet. Can I make a suggestion? Why don't you try and find a church to go to this year? Yeah, well, I went to the Mayfair one once with Lois. Thank you to Lois. Um, And then haven't been... Yeah, haven't been again. Yeah, I think you need to try out Anglo-Catholicism, Nick. I think you'd like it. It's your, it's your kind of thing. You know my problem, and you'll say it's an excuse. I come in from work at 1 a.m., then I've got in, you could call it insomnia or just my schedule. I often stay up till 4, 5, sometimes mm-hmm. 6. And then I've got yeah. to, how am I going to get to church? Well, there's got to be then an evening the morning. service somewhere, somewhere in London. There's got to be an Anglo-Catholic, traditionalist Anglo-Catholic evening service somewhere in, in London. There's got to be. That's, it's an Anglo-Catholic stronghold, Nick. Maybe fix my uh, sleep and go to church could be the two resolutions. Um, yeah. I know it's really terrible how I don't go to church. You know, lots of Christians don't. Even Rory, who interviewed me the other week, is big Christian, doesn't go to church. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I know you, you hate that, don't you? Obviously. No, no. Well, look, look, I think we need to have another podcast that, about that. Yeah. I mean, I've just thrown I've just thrown that in the last minute, yes. just to just to just to uh, as a because I saw an opportunity to to promote the notion of church church going. So I don't I don't want that to sort of take away from the you know the seriousness of the um, the conversation we just had because I meant it in a kind of like flipping. Oh, you know, why don't you try and go to church that way? I'm not I'm not saying that's going to solve all your problems or anything like that. But I do think it is a central component of the Christian life. And again, we don't have time to discuss why now because I've literally just got a text message I have to go. Okay. Um, um, but but I do think it I do think it is a very good thing to do, and I would uh, as I say let's have let's do another podcast where we talk about you know it would be good. You can say like well these are the problems with the church as far as I see it and as Rory sees, sees it and everything like that, and I'll I'll give my perspective. That would be I think good a good thing to do. Good idea, and yeah, we're certainly not going to blame a vicar for saying go to church. So I think <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair enough. Thanks so much for doing the show, Jamie. Maybe we'll return with our biblical series. Maybe we'll return with that church podcast you just mentioned. And um, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you again uh, next time. Thank you.